0: Today, I stand before you with excitement and also with fear and trepidation, knowing that I'm going to deliver a message from probably the most loved passage in Christendom, John chapter 3. This chapter captures the hearts of men. It captures the essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and God's love for the world. The message is this. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. I want to talk to the children in the room for a moment this morning. How many of you, guys, how many of you kids have memorized this verse? I remember... Memorizing this verse when I was five years old. (laughs) And I want to give you guys homework. I want you guys to ask your parents if they remember when they memorized that verse. Because I'm pretty sure that they remember. It's a quite notable verse. It is a message that we want our children to know, to love, and to cherish. This message motivates us to do things like Summerfest. It motivates us as parents to bring our children to to come and participate in the worship of the church. It It motivates us to help with church plants. And it motivates us with thankful and joyful hearts to carry on with the mission of God in every realm of life that God has called us to. Today it is my hope that we gain a deeper understanding of John 3:16 through the context that we're going to be talking about today. So that everyone in this room will be able to know love and cherish the God of John 3:16. So let us open up our Bibles to John chapter 3. However, as we look at John chapter 3, we notice that what was read, what Ben read, started in John chapter 2, verse 23. You see, the chapter divisions in our Bible and the the verses aren't inspired. uh, Helpful men have come along to put those together so we can know the addresses of where to open our Bibles. But this is an instance where these helpful tools may not be as helpful. You see, when we see John 3 in the context of John chapter 2, verse 23, it helps us to gain a deeper appreciation for what we will read. So my outline here is as follows. Number one, the insufficiency of man or the insufficiency of man's faith. Number two, the need for transformation. And lastly, the verses that we know and love, the way of salvation, John chapter three, verses nine through 21. So let's look very briefly at John chapter two, verse 23, uh, to the insufficiency of man's faith. What do I mean by that? What I want to say is, man's belief is not true belief that saves. You see in the text it says that many believed in his name. This sounds like a positive thing, does it? Let's see what John says. John 2:23: "While he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all. And because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. It might not be obvious in our English text, but if you were to look at this, this particular passage in the Greek, you would see that the word many believed and Jesus entrusts is the same word. It's believe. So actually, John is trying to make a play on words. He's, he's saying many believed in his name, but Jesus did not believe in them. John goes further To point to Jesus' divine seeing. You know in Scripture that we as humans have limited sight. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. So our insight is limited, but Jesus sees beyond our human seeing. He sees the motivations, he sees the thoughts, he sees the intentions of our hearts. John 2.23 or verse 25 gives us a little bit of insight of what Jesus saw. Many believed when they saw the signs that he was doing. So whatever faith that these men had, we know that it is not considered to John and to Jesus true and genuine faith because it was based on a condition it is a type of transactional or mercenary type of faith that says, God, if you will do this, then I will believe. Then I will follow your teachings. But if you, if you do not do these signs and wonders, then we will look on elsewhere. That is not faith. Faith. I think of our faith at times where we look at God in, the, in those ways and how we interact with him and say, God, I will give if I know that you're going to help me out, <laughs> take care of me. That's not faith. That's not the faith that God has called us to as the children of the light. We also see that even the, most, even the quintessential man in this text, His belief was not enough. Again, we got to look back to verse 25. It says, Jesus says, um, Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them or man, since he knew what was in them, man, because he he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Verse 1, there was a man. (laughs) From the Pharisees named Nicodemus. A ruler of the Jews, this man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are the teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform these signs you, would, you, you do unless God is with him. I want to point out three different aspects that help us to understand what's going on here in the text points out this character named Nicodemus. Firstly, I want to point out that this man mentioned is a Pharisee. He is a highly praised, highly esteemed, uh, esteemed leader, a part of a group that was known for their moral behavior and exemplary conduct. Not only was he a Pharisee, but he was also as the text says, a ruler of the Jews. Nicodemus held a leadership position among the people that served amongst the members of the Sanhedrin, the highest form of government in, in the Jewish system at the time. He was amongst the spiritual elite. Thirdly, as we see in verse 10, Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel. Not that he is Merely a teacher, but he was so prominent that he was considered the teacher of Israel. He was not just merely a scholar among scholars. He was one of the prominent scholars amongst the scholars of his day. Considering all these aspects of Nicodemus emerges, we, we see that he emerges as an exemplary figure representing the epitome of human qualities. Even his very name, a Greek name, means the victor of the people. Commentaries pointed out that this Jewish man having a Greek name meant that uh, he was a person of many different cultures and was able to interact and engage and learn from the Greeks. He probably knew a number of different languages He was a scholar. He was, in human terms, the most successful, most reputable person to walk on Jewish soil at this time. It's truly challenging to find a comparison in today's terminology and looking at today's people. There's no one that we could think of that has the political influence, the moral integrity, and the scholarly knowledge that Nicodemus had. If religious humanity sought for a representative in Jerusalem, Nicodemus would undoubtedly be the outstanding person, the outstanding choice. Thirdly, we see that man's knowledge is not true knowledge that saves you see, this quintessential man's different abilities and talents and, and knowledge held no weight before Jesus. Even though he was the best of the best, man's knowledge did not lead to, saving, to a saving knowledge. You see that In John chapter 2, it says, many believe because of the signs. Look at the knowledge that it talks about in John 3, verse 2. Nicodemus says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one can perform these signs unless God were with him. Jesus looks at this man and looks at his heart and sees the inadequate faith and in response, John 3, 3, Jesus says, truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This ruler of the Jews, dare, dare I say king? This king of the Jews cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. What this passage solemnly teaches us is it doesn't matter what your pedigree is. It doesn't matter what type of leadership abilities or how high you go up the ladder. You could be the President of the United States. You could be a Prime Minister of one of the world's superpowers. Yet that is not enough to enter into the Kingdom of Heaven. You need a different passport. You could be the kingliest king or the scholar of all scholars and not understand the ways of Christ and his kingdom. Nicodemus, this ruler, faces this king who talks about this entrance into his kingdom. Even Nicodemus, despite his esteemed position and reputation, even though he was head and shoulder above them all, still... Needed a renewal, a spiritual transformation. So, going on to point number two, the need for spiritual transformation, as we see in verses four through eight. This Reverend Professor Doctor struggled to understand what Jesus was talking about. So, he says, verse four, How can anyone be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked him, can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Well, that word born again is an interesting word. As I studied uh, in, in different places, I realized that the word born again, anothen in Greek, has dual meaning. It seems like John does it a lot. It could mean born again, or as you could see in your English Bibles, there's a footnote that says, it could also be rendered born from above. Jesus is trying to talk about how he is from heaven, and he gives this birth that is from above, but Nicodemus sees it from earthly human glasses, and so he perceives, how can I enter my mother's womb again? and be born again. Jesus, uh, actually, uh, we see in the prologue of, of the Gospel of John, it highlights this unique birth. It says in John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, but to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man but of God Jesus expounds on this in John chapter 3 verse 5 he says truly I tell you unless someone is born of water and the spirit he cannot enter the kingdom of God whatever is born of the flesh is flesh Whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I have told you that you must be born again or born above. The wind blows where it pleases, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. There's two different facets of being born of the Spirit, being born from above or born again. First, the text says that Jesus calls Nicodemus to be born of water and the Spirit. There are many different commentaries who think a lot of different things on this text. I've heard and I've, I've believed that I, at the time that water was, water meant physical birth, and spirit uh, birth, that's the birth of the Holy Spirit. But as we see, in the Greek construction, it puts them together, it's water and the Spirit. Even though many people have seen this birth as two different things, we should actually see it as, as one thing, two sides of the same coin. You see, in the context both the water, all throughout John, it talks about this, uh, the baptism of John and the baptism of Christ, or these cleansing pots that were supposed to hold, cleansing water in, uh, in the wedding, yet Jesus is the ultimate cleanser. You see, commentaries point out that it is the same process, but it, it sees it from the human or the physical aspect or it points to a type of water baptism. You see, baptism is more than merely dunking someone in water. In the first century, this had true and lasting significance. If you had a Muslim friend and you were asked them to be baptized, that, that would be a very significant event their whole world would change. The baptism of the Jews in this first century, um, what, they, what they knew of baptism is the baptism of a proselyte. So those who would leave their pagan culture, leave their pagan religion, and be baptized into the Ju- Judaistic religion, they would be considered babies within this new system Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, you must become a child. You must cross over this social boundary and not hold on to your leadership or the fact that you are a teacher of Israel, but follow me, renouncing those ways. In order for Nicodemus to follow Christ, this elder of the Jews must become a newborn child of the kingdom of heaven. In order for Nicodemus to be transferred from this old lifestyle to this new one, he must go from a learned scholar to an unlearned student of Christ. In order for Nicodemus to follow Christ, he must lay aside his prominent leadership over Israel and submit as a disciple of King Jesus. But is he ready to lay down all these things and forsake all for following Christ? The text does not uh, point to that, at least not yet. We see that even this quintessential man's faith is inadequate unless the Spirit works. He must do what the Apostle Paul did, who was also a prominent Jew among Jews, who laid aside his fleshly accomplishments in order to follow Christ, counted all those things as as dung and followed after Christ. We see that this spirit transformation work is also seen from a different angle as we see Jesus talk about the spirit being like the wind. I think of Guam and the typhoon that that hit our island. Um, upwards to 185 miles per hour. I've seen videos of semis and, and uh, trucks being toppled over, flipping over because of those strong winds. Jesus is saying that we cannot control the, the spirit the same way that man cannot control the wind, how he works or how he moves. The Holy Spirit has a will of his own how do we know that if the Holy Spirit is blowing his breath into our lives? Have you experienced the newfound work of God through the power of the Holy Spirit? Have you ever truly felt conviction over your sin? Have you seen a difference in, in your innermost thoughts, your attitudes, and your behaviors? When it's just you and God in a room. As as Ben has said in in the beginning, this is a work that only the Spirit can do to invite us into this life and invite us into this worship. From here we should realize how inapt, <laughs> inadequate that we are in and of ourselves. And we must pray, we must pray, we must pray, we must depend on the Holy Spirit to do this work in us. We must be willing to set aside our merits, our good works, and all our accomplishments to follow after Christ. As we go to point number three, the way of salvation, I just want to pause for a moment. We talked about this Nicodemus character who is ahead above all, and comparing uh, ourselves, comparing myself to this character, I fall short. <laughs> Jesus would not give him the assurance that he wanted. This ruler or king of the of the Jews was, did not have entrance into the kingdom of heaven. And so if Nicodemus, who is this prominent figure, who is this essential man, this choice man, this victor amongst the people, couldn't receive entrance into the kingdom, how in the world can I have assurance of my salvation? You see, Nicodemus is confounded by Jesus' lack of assurance for him in the kingdom. As he says in verse 9, what do you mean about the spiritual work that must happen in order for me to gain eternal life? Verse nine, how can these things be? Verses uh, 10 through 21, there's, it's packed with a lot of theology. <laughs> and I, I, I've, I spent a lot of time this week uh, reading through, and it's, it's a very, very deep passage. But what I want us to see even though we could go every which way direction, is to focus on the gospel. Namely, the gospel that Jesus presents here. The gospel of the good news of God's love for humanity. I want to lay out this presentation that Jesus uh, gives to Nicodemus, these 12 verses of hope, by giving you four simple questions that that we will answer this morning. So the question is, how can we know of our assurance of our salvation? Here are the four questions. Do you accept the testimony of God? Verses 10 through 12. Do you believe in the Son? Verses 3 through 16. What are you loving today? Verses 19 through 20. And how are you living Verse 21. Number one, do you accept the testimony of God? Jesus speaks to Nicodemus in verse 10 and says, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not know these things? Truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know. We testify to what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. I'm not gonna get into this, but Jesus is putting himself on the same level as, as God the Father. You, are, you have not accepted our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? I, I want to point out to you the, the spiritual cognitive di- dissonance that Nicodemus has at this very moment. You see, in the beginning of the conversation, he says, we know that you were a teacher that comes from God because only God can uh, do these things. Yet, as as Jesus is speaking to him, it's almost like he forgets that, and he's not as readily accepting of what Christ is is giving. and And Jesus even says that I'm trying to give you this testimony, yet you you do not accept it. So, without the accepting of the witness of Christ except without the accepting of the wisdom of that we find in his word and receiving it as true we cannot enter the kingdom of God not only should we accept the testimony but number 2 are you believing in the son you see this teacher of Israel could not Fathom what Christ was talking about, and and Jesus says, "Are you are you, are you truly the teacher of Israel? <laughs> you 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 claim to have a type of prominence, a, a type of of teaching of the Old Testament scriptures. Here, let me teach you, teacher of Israel." the ways of the scripture that you say that you are so proficient in. We see in verse 13, Jesus starts talking about these Old Testament themes that he should be picking up on. Verse, verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the son of man. Verse 14, G- just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believed in him may have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus speaks to this prominent Old Testament, Old Covenant teacher, and he points out three different themes or portraits that Nicodemus should pick up on. Portrait number one, uh, Jesus claims himself to be the son of man that Daniel prophesies. Notice that Jesus calls himself the son of man and not the son of God. In, in our culture today, we would think that being called the son of God would be uh, more uplifting of Christ. Yet, in this Jewish culture at the time, calling people the Son of God was pretty normal. It wasn't necessarily something that you would call divinity, because even in the Scriptures, Adam and Solomon, King Solomon, are called sons of the sons of, of God. The term "son of man," on the other hand, has a deeper meaning that derives from the Book of Daniel chapter 7, where it depicts this human-like figure, this divine king who would rule and reign and receive glory, authority, and worship from all peoples on the earth. By identifying himself as the Son of Man, Jesus is actually asserting his divinity and kingship. He is saying that he is the Son of Man that is prophesied in Daniel 7. And in this context, the Son of Man is not lesser of a title. It is a greater one. Portrait number two, Jesus claims to be the symbol that Moses lifts in the wilderness. In this passage, Jesus draws a parallel in the incident where um, the children of Israel are in the wilderness. And Moses lifts up a bronze serpent in Numbers 21. You see, the children of Israel fell under a curse because of their, their sin. And there were venomous snakes around them that were biting them. But those who looked toward the sign or the symbol that Moses lifted up on a pole would be restored to health and live again. So too, the Son of Man will be lifted, not on a pole, but on a cross, And those who look to him will not perish, but have eternal life. Portrait number three. Jesus claims to be the one and only son. Promise to Father Abraham. Jesus further explains that he fulfills the promise to Father Abraham that is is regarded in Genesis 22. God directs Abraham to offer his only son, his beloved son, to be sacrificed. As Abraham carries out his duty and follows God's command, God intervenes and stops him, revealing that the purpose was not to strike down Isaac, his only son, his beloved son, but ultimately is supposed to foreshadow a day that was to come where God the Father would display His love for the world by giving up His one and only Son, His beloved Son, as a sacrifice, and all those who see Him lifted on the cross and believe in Him would have eternal life. This word believe is... In, in this passage of Jesus displaying the gospel to Nicodemus, the word believe is used seven times. He doesn't want you to miss it. Believe, believe, believe. This is what happens if you don't believe in the Son. Believing in the Son leads to eternal life. Thirdly, we must ask ourselves, if you want to be assured of your salvation, what are you loving today? What are you loving John chapter 3, verse 19, it says, This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. You see, that's what's happening in this Nicodemus narrative in the beginning of the chapter, it says that Nicodemus came from the nighttime, and all throughout the book of John, uh, nighttime and darkness is held with, uh, with bad connotations. And so what we're, try- what we're supposed to read here is, as Nicodemus comes from the night, uh, some commentators have said that he did not want to go, go uh, during the day because Uh, He did not want to be seen as uh, coming to Jesus, as he he was not ready to have that type of relationship publicly. Whatever, Whatever you may think about that, just know that this Nicodemus who comes out of the darkness, who speaks three times, is no longer speaking anymore. So you see this light of Christ he continues this conversation, you don't hear from Nicodemus anymore. It's almost like the darkness is exposed from the light. There are two type of people in this world. There are people who love darkness, and there, there are those who love the light of Christ. To know where we stand, we should consider, what do we truly love? John chapter 3 says that many people prefer the darkness rather than pursuing this light of Christ. So we should ask ourselves today, do I have a genuine faith? Do I believe? One of the ways that we could know that is by asking a question, do I genuinely love the light of Christ? Do I find joy in being with Jesus? Do I love spending time with people of the light? Or do I see it as a burden Are you willing to let go of your sinful habits and embrace this life of of light that is found in Jesus Christ? These are the types of questions that help us to reflect on whether we are truly believing by looking at our affections. Our affections point to where our belief stands. Number four, how are you living today? And this was something that I didn't see until I started reading and studying this text. John chapter 3, verse 21. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light, so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. This is, in, in, in in this verse, we see that belief is more than just a mental assent it leads to action because it is it, it teaches us that believing is more than a mental assent like that of nicodemus but is an action of faith it says that those who believe must live by the truth of this light so i ask you this morning how are you living today or better yet, how do the actions of your life portray who you are believing in? Belief is more than just mere words. Belief is faith in action. I know this is an uh, illustration that many of us know. It's, it's probably uh, used way too many times, but I'm going to do it uh, So kids, faith is like this chair. There's two types of beliefs. There's there's a type of belief where you could mentally believe that this chair will hold you up. But we need to live out that reality of allowing that chair to hold our weight. So there is a type of belief that that is separated but mentally assents to the fact that this chair could hold, hold me. But I act out on that faith by actually sitting in the chair. In the same way, we need to not only me- mentally assent to who Christ is, but we must sit. We must rest in him. We must, we must try him. We must live in him and with him. In this, we see the love of the Son of Man, that this king who came down from heaven did not come at this time to condemn the world or to bring judgment to the world, but he would bring life through his sacrifice on the cross. And that's how we can know that we are, are, are believing. Number one, are you accepting the testimony of God in his words, in what is spoken in, in, through the Spirit? Number two, are you believing in the Son? This not only Son of God, but the Son of Man, this kingly figure who will rule and reign for all eternity. What are you loving? And how are you living? Let us consider the love of Christ who came down from heaven not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, these people of the light that you have established through your coming down. Knowing, Father, that you loved the world, not just Israel, but every kindred, tribe, people, and nation that is represented here in this room. Lord, you loved us so much that you came down. You through in your incarnation. You were the God made flesh that dwelt among us and we have seen your glory, glory of that of the Father full of grace and truth and that you were a king who is lifted up on a cross. You died for our sins and all those who believe In you, will have eternal life. And ultimately, you are lifted up and raised to the right hand of the Father. We praise you, Jesus, for this love that you have for us. In Christ, we pray. Amen.